Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from the Horsham Church of Christ. For more information, please visit our website at www.horsham.org.au. Yesterday was a great day. How many people came yesterday? We had about close to 60 people come for our marriage seminar yesterday. It was a great day. Alan and Helen really spoke clearly into our marriages, not even just to our marriages, but into businesses, into community, um, really gave us a healthy dynamic about uh, some great marriages and some great relationships. Um, and I know that today, as uh, we welcome Alan, if you want to start making your way up, because, you know, it's a fair way around to the steps. Um, Alan and Helen uh, celebrated 50 years marriage within the last week, uh, so they know what they're talking about. Yeah, so uh, we, we've been really blessed by the ministry that Alan and Helen have brought, and it's been great to have them along. Um, and we trust that you're blessed today as well. And so, would you give another round of applause as we welcome Alan, Alan and prepare for the message? Thanks, Al. Good on you, mate. Thank you, Simon. It's, uh, thank you. I appreciate that very much. You know how you go to the, the supermarket sometimes, you buy a bag of salad? Don't know if you do that up here in the farm. Maybe you just pull it out of the backyard. But uh, I know in Melbourne, we have to go buy these things in plastic bags. You buy a bag of salad and leave it for a couple of days, it starts to go brown and ugly and then this nasty water appears in the bottom of the bag. You know that stuff? Donuts never do that. (laughs) They never do that. Get a photo of that wall, Simon, and send it to me. It's a very fine thing. What a privilege it was to be here yesterday. Speaking on marriage, Helen and I have been married for 50 years last weekend and We have four kids and we have 12 grandchildren and we're just so grateful for the privilege of a life that works. Um, Not everybody has had that experience and one of the things we love doing is uh, coaching and encouraging people on um, how to make things last, how how to make it last, how to make church great, how to make marriage and family great, business great, the whole thing. And it was a wonderful day yesterday. We brought some resources with us. If you're looking for a Father's Day present, why don't you get a book? My book, From Good Man to Valiant Man, it's about a male sexuality. Mum needs to read it as well because uh, everybody has to relate to men no matter where they go. You can't escape them. And it helps to understand what's happening on the male side of the gender divide. That's called From Good Man to Valiant Man. I love this. It's called The Great Debate. The largest meeting we ever had in our own church, uh, Mount Evelyn Church of Christ, uh, was uh, the day I debated or the night I debated an atheist in church. He was the founder of the Secular Party. He was a real fan of Richard Dawkins. He loved his book, The God Delusion. He came to explain to us how deluded we were. Well, for two hours, we, de- de- we debated whether Christianity is a delusion. It was brilliant. At the end of that, I had four people stand up and briefly share miracles they'd had in their life. He didn't have any miracles to share, so it was 4 nil for the Christians. Um, if you've never seen a debate like that, that could be of interest to you or maybe one of your neighbours, and this is one of my favourite, getting a breakthrough in fasting and prayer. When you say, looking at you, Al, what would you know about fasting and prayer? That's the rudest thing I've ever heard in my life, and and I resent that you would ever say a thing of that nature. Uh, Some of my greatest breakthroughs in encountering God have been in fasting and prayer, and sometimes people have never heard much about it. They've never heard, how do you do it? How does it work? Why does it work? What, What does God want from us? Does he want us to suffer? What's that about? Getting a breakthrough in fasting and prayer is one of the most important resources I've ever created. Heard about this farmer who uh, knew a farmer nearby was selling a donkey. 
and uh, he was on sale for $100, so we sent him a check for $100, said, I'll come over on the weekend, pick him up. Came over on the weekend, and his friend said, look, I'm sorry, buddy, but the, the donkey's dead. He said, well, give him $100 back. He said, I can't, I've already spent it. He said, all right, well, give me, give me, the, dead, dead, give me the dead donkey. Put him on a trail. He said, what are you going to do with him? He said, I'm going to raffle him. He said, you can't raffle a dead donkey. He said, oh, you sure I can. You watch me. Off he went. A couple of weeks later, he ran into him in the market. He said, hey, how did that, that donkey thing go? He said, brilliant. I made $898. So how did you do that? He said, I sold 500 tickets for $2. And I said, well, weren't people upset? He said, no, only the guy who won it. <laughs> I said, well, what did you do? He said, oh, I gave him his money back. The only way a farmer can survive these days, you gotta think a little bit. I want to talk to you about one of the greatest principles I have ever encountered in my walk with God. And on Father's Day, there's no more appropriate day than to share it. I want to talk to you about how you relate well to an imperfect dad. And of course, it has implications because every now and then you just may bump into an imperfect mum. It's not as common, but it might happen. And every now and then you just might work for an imperfect boss or have an imperfect neighbour uh, or even marry someone who's imperfect. That could happen. And if you don't know how to handle that moment, if you don't know how to handle that relationship, sometimes those relationships don't last. And God has something to say to you today that could be really, really helpful. And it's my hope that what has helped me could actually help you. How many of you have ever heard about Noah? Put your hand up if you've heard the name Noah. Come on, put your hand up. Some people have not put up their hands. The elders will come to see you this afternoon and explain the whole story to you in your house. Noah was an interesting man because if Noah was not your dad, you were toast. Because at the end of Noah's life, everybody else was dead. Noah's flood. The only people who were alive was Noah's wife, Noah's three sons and their wives. So it was really important to have Noah for your dad. And I guess you'd be very grateful for a dad like that. You'd, you'd get up every morning and say, oh, dad, you're just the greatest dad because, dad, if we didn't have you for a dad, we'd be dead. What a blessing. Question. If these three boys were so blessed in having such a wonderful dad, I wonder why that was so. Why was Noah the man who survived and no one else did? Good question. Read your Bible. Because right here in the Bible, Genesis chapter 6, we get an explanation as to why... Noah survived and no one else did. Verse 9. Now this is the account of Noah and his family. Now Noah was a good man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. What a brilliant dad to have. Whew. Dad, I'm so grateful you're a good man, Dad. I'm so grateful that you were blameless among the people of your time. I am so grateful that you have walked faithfully with God because, Dad, if you weren't such a good man, I'd be toast. Whew, must have been wonderful. Question. If Noah was such a good man and it was such a blessing living in Noah's house, how come just a couple of chapters down the Bible one of these very fortunate boys ends up being cursed? Good question. Read your Bible. Answers to difficult questions are found in the Bible and here in Genesis chapter 9 we get the answer. How come one of these very fortunate boys ended up cursed? Now Noah was a man of the soil and he pre proceeded to plant a vineyard and when he drank some of its wine he became drunk 
and lay uncovered inside his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside, Ooh, boy, his dad's lying round in the nutty. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders and they walked in backwards and they covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. And when Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. So why did one of these boys end up being cursed? And the answer is because his father was a bad man. It's a bad man that gets so drunk he doesn't know if his clothes are on or off. And now we have a paradox. You mean my dad was so good, he was so righteous that he attracted the attention of God and he was such a good man that the only reason I survived the flood is because my dad was a good man and yet he's also a bad man. And it was his lack of control that ended up creating a stumbling block for one of his sons and there we bump into a very interesting biblical idea, the idea of a parental paradox, that your parents might be both good and bad. But did you notice it wasn't Noah who ended up cursed? It was his son. Because when you relate to an imperfect parent, it's you that has to relate appropriately or it's you that will pay the price. Doesn't sound fair to me. Well, I didn't come to tell you what was fair, I just came to tell you how life works. Interesting thing is it's not the only time it appears in the Bible. Now, if it was only once, you'd say, well, that's just once. But there, here's, here's twice. Second Samuel is a whole book of the Bible in which the parental paradox is a subplot. The main character of Second Samuel is the great King David. Now in chapter 1, we find David hears that Saul, his great nemesis, has been killed on the battlefield. So what's David going to do? Does he dance on his grave? Woohoo! Woohoo! The wicked king is dead. No, no, because he's a good man. He writes a great lament. How are the mighty fallen? And he honours a dead king. In chapter 2, the tribe of Judah come to David and say, David, you're such a good man. You should be the king over the tribe of Judah and they anoint him to be king over their tribe. In chapter 3, God begin, David begins his family. It's a little different than the average family because David has six wives. But what a man. Every one of these wives starts popping out a firstborn son like peas, one after another. Six wives, six firstborn sons. Wife number one produces Amnon. Wife number three produces Absalom. And these six firstborn sons are growing up in the home of a national hero. What a man! In chapter four, David punishes the man who murdered Saul's son, Iphbosheth, because he's a good man. He won't put up with that kind of thing. In chapter five, the whole of Israel come to David and say, David, you should be king over the whole nation, not just over one tribe. And David is crowned king over all of Israel. And in chapter 6, he captures Jerusalem for the first time and sets up worship. He makes Jerusalem the capital city of, of worship in the whole world for the first time. David is so amazing. God shows up in chapter 7 and says, Davy, you're such a good man, I'll make a promise to you. There is going to be a king sitting on the throne of Israel that will come out of your body, 
and he's going to rule for all time, and that's fulfilled in Jesus, the one we call the son of David, Jesus, the son of David. In chapter 8, David has one victory after another. In chapter 9, he discovers that Saul's crippled offspring, Ishbosheth, is still alive. Now, does he kill him? Get rid of another rival to his own family? No, he's a good man. He brings the crippled boy into his household, sits him at his table and treats him like royalty. In chapter 10, David defeats the Ammonites. Is there nothing this good man cannot do? Chapter 11 is a bad day in the office. Spots a neighbour's wife having a bath, invites her over for a game of chess. <laughs> Turns into a very vigorous game of chess, he gets the girl pregnant. What do you do when you get the neighbour's wife pregnant? You bring the neighbour home from the war to sleep with his wife so no one will know whose kid this is. But here is a man so dedicated to his king and such a loyal leader, he's not prepared to have one night with his wife when men under his command are risking their lives on a battlefield. He sleeps on David's doorstep. How do you repay a man for that kind of loyalty? You murder the guy. And adultery and murder is a bad day in the office for the average man. Chapter 12, Nathan the prophet of Israel puts his bony finger in David's face and says, You, sir are a bad man. It's a bad man that commits adultery and murder. And now we have another paradox. A man who writes half the Psalms, who's known as the man after God's own heart, the king to whom all following kings will be compared, and yet he's such a bad man, he's known today, and here I am telling you the story again 3,000 years later that he's an adulterer and a murderer. But watch it spill over into his family. In chapter 13, his eldest son gets the hots for his half-sister Tamar, drags the girl into his bedroom and rapes her. What's daddy going to do about that? Well, it's very hard for daddy to discipline the eldest son for rape when he's just been exposed as a murderer and an adulterer himself. Daddy does nothing. But the girl has a big brother. His name's Absalom. He gives Daddy two years to sort out the family crisis. And when Daddy does nothing, he takes it into his own hands and murders his big brother and skips town. One dead son. David's so wrapped up in himself that even in the middle of this crisis, he never seeks out this boy and makes a phone call and tries to settle the issue. And so for years, this kid lives away from Jerusalem, waiting for dad to get in touch, and he never does. He starts to agitate amongst dad's friends to be allowed to come back home. And his dad gives him permission to come back home to Jerusalem, but he still doesn't make that phone call for another couple of years. And now seven years down the track, in chapter 15 of 2 Samuel, this boy is so angry, he's standing in the gates of the city telling anyone who's willing to listen, would that I was king in Israel. In chapter 16, he goes for his father's throat and throws the whole nation into civil war. And now David's running like a rabbit, scurrying away from the city, trying to preserve his life. And by chapter 18, this young man is hanging by his hair from a tree. Three javelins are sticking out of his chest. 
and his father is in an upstairs room sobbing his heart out. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, would that I could have died for you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. What is that? That's a paradox. Did you notice it's not David who's dead? David's the paradoxical father, but he's not dead. Two of his sons are. Because they didn't hand, handle the paradoxical behavior of their father appropriately. And for this cause, the Bible says in the words of Jesus, judge not lest you yourself be judged. It's so easy to judge your mum, it's so easy to judge your dad. But when you do, when you don't know how to handle their inadequacies and you handle it inappropriately, it's you that will pay the price. You have to learn how to relate to an imperfect parent. Reality is this. Our parents have a profound impact on our life. They mark us. They mark us for good and they mark us for harm. Have you ever watched the way a baby learns a language? We are so relationally oriented because we are made in the image of the Trinitarian God who is the God of intimacy from all eternity. Made in His image, we are face-to-face -face people and we suck into the building blocks of our character and our belief systems the vibe of our surroundings. You know, it's a fascinating thing trying to learn a language. I don't know if you've ever tried to learn a second one. I learned German for two years in high school. I couldn't buy a bus ticket in Germany with the German I learned in two solid years. Why not? Because I wasn't surrounded by German, I was surrounded by Australians. When I was born, however, quite a different story. You, you know, when babies are born, they don't have language. They make noises, but they, they don't have any vocabulary. They don't have any uh, capacity to communicate. Well, there must be a big government department somewhere with lots of experts and textbooks to help these kids learn to speak. That's not how it happens. All you have to do is put them in a house, sit them in a bassinet, put them in the middle of a home, and all around them people are speaking. Uncle Harry comes, I'll never know how kids work out the difference between weird Uncle Harry and real communication, but they do it. All you have to do is put them in the environment and they start to suck it in. They are little learning computers. And a couple of years down the track, or even months, you start to hear it. Mama, dada, no. <laughs> Who taught that kid to say no? Oh, no one had to teach him, sir. He's just hanging around with you. Fact is this, we are so relationally oriented, we pick up the vibe of our household so precisely that you can hear a two-year-old child utter a single sentence. And in one sentence, you can hear that musical lilt. And you can know if this kid was born in Australia or South Africa or North America, or whether he's born in London. Because we don't just pick up the big building blocks of vocabulary and grammar. We learn so precisely our family of origin that you can hear that musical lilt we call accent and you haven't just picked up accent in that way. The things that are honourable and valuable about your mum and your dad have marked you and their inadequacies have marked you as well 
and God knew that would be true. See, the reality is this. When, when healthcare professionals, when counsellors are working with people, trying to help them understand the struggles they have in life, a good healthcare professional can see the fingerprints of the, of the family background in every area of a client's life. You see it in every area. You'll see it in their ability, uh, the career choice they make. You'll see it in the, in the issue of who they marry, why they marry, if they marry, their ability to stay married, how they do their marriage, how they uh, express intimacy, the struggles they have with intimacy, how they parent, how they relate to people in general, um, their identity and self-esteem issues. You see the fingerprints of that. Their propensity to alcoholism, to drug abuse, to sexual abuse to obesity or anorexia, to frigidity or promiscuity, to homicidal rage or impotent passivity. A healthcare professional can see the fingerprints of mum and dad and the family in every area of a person's life. And God knew that would be true. He knew we would need help with this. He knew we'd need help with it for a number of reasons. Firstly, both the good and the bad have marked us. Secondly, he knew we would need a paradigm in relating to imperfect people? Or did you think you would marry the only person in the world with whom you would not have to make any personal adjustments because their personality, their behaviour patterns and their beliefs just absolutely perfectly synchronise with yours, you have no adjustments to make? Or did you think you would work for a boss who lies awake at night trying to figure out how to make the workplace perfectly aligned with the way you do life? Or did you think that you would employ people who would come to work and clock on and every one of them would simply behave in a manner that just totally aligns with you? Or did you think that you would move into a neighbourhood where all the neighbours will align their behaviours to make sure you never have to face any challenges? Did you think you would come to a church where pastor would mystically and amazingly preach messages every week that exactly align with your theology and your perceptions on life. He phones you without even knowing there was a need. He, he has an intuitive insight to everything to make sure church... Did you think you'd go to a home group where every leader leads the group in exactly the way... Where, what kind of world do you think you live in? You see, here's the problem. Not all of the imperfect people live at your house. They live at other people's houses too. And one day you'll have to work alongside them or live with them. And God knew that if you didn't have a paradigm, if you didn't have the skills to live with imperfect people, you'd be banging your head against a wall everywhere you go. And as a result, God has something to say to you this morning that could really help you in your life. How to relate not only to an imperfect dad, but to every other imperfect person you ever have to relate to. Who would like to hear what God has to say? Anyone interested in what God has to say? There's six, eight, twelve, and nearly got a majority. I am a, I am a democratic preacher. I hate to preach on something that the majority isn't in favour of. And I've got other messages I can do a different one. Who would like to hear what God has to say in speaking to people? I'm not, I haven't got a majority yet. You know, keep going. Okay, that's a majority. Okay, good. Here's what God has to say to you to give you the skills you need to relate to imperfect people everywhere you go, starting with your own mum and dad. You ready for it? It's going to be wonderful. You might want to take a little white card and write this down because you could keep it in your pocket next time you bump into an imperfect person, you could pull it out and read it. That could be really helpful. Uh, what might be very disappointing, however, is when I say this verse, you might already know it. 
and you think, oh, bother, just when I thought the dude was going to say something useful, <laughs> it comes out with that nonsense because <laughs> that verse didn't help me yesterday, how's it going to help me tomorrow? Well, here it is, comes right out of the Bible, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12, God's wisdom from heaven for relating to imperfect parents, Exodus 20 verse 12, you shall honour your father and your mother. I do not see a ripple of gratitude flowing across this congregation. <laughs> you miserable bunch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Honour your father and your mother. Honour your father. <laughs> what a bunch of rubbish. Honour your father. Yeah, typical God stuff. You know why God's always sticking up for old people? Because he's the ancient of days, that's why. Honour <laughs> your father and your mother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what God, he just doesn't want us rocking. Don't rock the boat. Don't rock the boat. Think your mum and dad are perfect. You know, that's what poor old Ham should have done. Come home and find dad lying there in the nutty. He should have done a Sergeant Schultz. I see nothing. I see nothing. Yeah, typical Bible nonsense. Honour your father and your mother. On, yeah, yeah, yeah. If I told my mum and dad all the things they'd done that hurt me in my life, they'd be slashing their wrists. That's what they'd be doing. If I told my mum and dad all the ways they messed up my life, they couldn't sleep at night. But, but hang on, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible does not say, honour your father and your mother so they can feel good about their parenting skills. The Bible does not say, pretend your mum and dad are perfect. The Bible does not say honour your mother and your father so they can sleep well at night. The Bible says honour your father and your mother that it may be well with you. God is concerned for you. And he knows if you never learn to do this, it will not go well with you no matter where we put you in life. You'll be leaving churches, resigning from positions, breaking friendships, walking away in divorce. You'll be butting your head against a brick wall everywhere you go because you never learned how to do this. You say, well, I don't get it, Al. I don't get it. It just seems, how am I supposed to, to honour my... You don't know my dad. You don't know my mum. They were horrible. Well, it goes to the core of understanding this word honour. The word honour is, is the Hebrew word kabed, which means to let something be as heavy as it really is, to let it be as significant as it really is. But the interesting thing about it is it's not a word that's just used in the positive, it's moved, used in the positive and in the negative, which means God is not asking you to pretend your mum and dad were perfect. That is not honouring your mother and father, trying to say, I say nothing, I say nothing. It's not trying to pretend mum and dad had no faults. In fact, if you don't do this properly, you will repeat their faults over and over again. Because what God is asking you to do is not to pretend they're perfect. He's asking you to look at your parents with wisdom and understanding and let them be as heavy as they really are, both on the positive side and on the negative side, but you have to learn different skills on each side of that equation. On the positive side, this is what God is saying to you. You have to let the good stuff in your parents' lives, the good stuff that has been a blessing to you, you have to let that be as significant as it really is. 
And that's right where we bump into our humanity because when people upset us, we don't like to think there was anything good about them. We regularly just wipe people off if there's something that offends us. And God says you don't get to do that. You don't get to minimize the good stuff because you were hurt. You don't get to pretend the good stuff didn't happen. You don't get to say, oh, my dad went to work for 40 years and put a roof over our head and put Thai food on the table, so what? You don't get to say that. You get to let that be as big as it really is. And on this side of the equation, you have to learn a skill, and the skill is called gratitude. God wants you to see every blessing that came your way because of your mum and dad, and he wants you to pour the skill of gratitude out through that opening in your heart. Be grateful. It's one reason why people don't worship when they come to church, because God has upset them. He might have sent Jesus and Jesus might have died on a cross and my sins might be forgiven and I might have the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting, but you don't understand how unhappy I am. And so I'm not going to let all the good stuff be as good as it is. I'm going to be miserable. And it's a skill to be learned, to let the good stuff be as good as it is and not let the hurt blow it off. And when we do that, we become sour and become bitter. We're incapable of seeing the great things that are actually there. And therefore, it just changes everything about the way we do life. It happens in marriage, it happens in business, it happens in government, it happens in your walk with your mum and dad. Now, on the other side of the, of the equation, God does not want you to pretend your mum and dad are perfect. He wants you to honour them. And to honour them means to let the bad stuff be as bad as it really is. But on this side, you need to learn a different skill. And the skill you need to learn here is the is the skill of genuine forgiveness, the recognition that people aren't perfect and that you are one of that group. That just as you're going to need people to show mercy to you in your frailties and your mistakes, if my kids are not merciful to me, they could easily judge every mistake I've made in the last 70 years. But if they learn a skill, you can realise my mum and my dad weren't perfect and as a result, I'm going to genuinely and fully and completely seek to understand that as best I can, see where it has marked me and truly forgive and say to God, heal my heart because I don't want to repeat that for the rest of my life. Now, for some of the people sitting in this place today, that what I just said is not that hard to do. Some of you were raised with really good, just like I was, with a really good mum and dad, um, and as a result, you say, oh, that's, that's great. Thank you very much for that. That's not a big deal. There'll be someone sitting here today saying, what you just asked me to do is to climb Mount Everest. You have no idea how miserable my mum or my dad or sometimes even both of them were to me. You have no idea. My parent was absent or my parent was neglectful or my parent was, was flawed. So every time I say that, I think of my own, my own little wife. My girl grew up in a home where her mother died when she was eight years of age and her father became a functioning alcoholic. I, I remember the bruises on her arms when she was 17 years of age and had to leave home and live elsewhere while she was doing her training as in primary school. She was being raised in a, in a flawed household. That becomes a bigger mountain to climb. Every now and then you'll bump into someone whose parents were absolutely abusive and now and then you will meet someone whose parents were downright evil. What are you going to say to them, Al? Huh? What, are you, what advice are you going to give to them? Exactly the same. 
Exactly the same. You shall honour your father and your mother. But hang on, how am I supposed to honour the good stuff when there was absolutely nothing to honour? Oh yes, there is something. There is something to honour. Because of them, you are alive. And because you are alive, you have a life which can be forgiven and redeemed. It may well be you have overcome the worst life can throw at you and all that stretches out in front of you from this moment forward is the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. You have a life that Christ Jesus can honour with everlasting life. You have an incredible future. Don't tell me there's nothing to honour. And if you overlook the privilege of the fact that even the worst parents gave you a life, then you're going to cross that off. And I'll tell you, there'll be an outcome for that. Listen to what Dallas Willard says when talking to those who struggle to see any good in their parental background. He says this, If you do not deeply appreciate the weight of their giving the gift of life, you are condemned to despising yourself, for you are the life that they generated. If you never press through your disrespect or rejection of your parents and who they are, there will be a similar disrespect for yourself. A long and healthy existence rooted deep in the soul requires that at some level we be grateful to God for who they are, not necessarily for all the things that they have done. And if you came here today and you couldn't think of a single thing to honour in your parents' existence, honour this. You have a life that God can bless because of them. Let that become a big deal in your life. It will change your perception profoundly and give you a totally different way of viewing your past. It'll change every area of your life. Now, I want to say this. I'm grateful to say I'm amongst those group of people that don't have such a big hill to climb. If I look back on my mum, my mum was nearly perfect. Women are made out of sugar and spice and all things nice, and as a result, mums tend to be, not always, but they tend to be less problematic to kids than their father. My dad, on the other hand, I have a number of things in my memory that um, marked dad out as a dangerous man in my experience. He was a very good man. He loved my mother. He loved God. So many good things. But the reality was this. I had a number of things, situations in which I could see my dad had really kind of damaged my life. Um, one thing about my dad is this, if I disappointed my dad, he could go silent on me. And the first time I ever saw this was when I was four years of age. And the fact that I can tell you about it is a demonstration of how it marked my heart. My dad built a kite. We built it in the backyard. We loved it. Uh, went out and flew the kite with dad and it was fun. Um, dad was a school teacher. He went off to teach school. I woke up in the morning. I'm only four years old. I don't go to school. And I've got to find some fun for the day. I decide I'll fly the kite all by myself. So I head off across Belmore Road, which would have given my mother a fit, take the kite as a child off Belmore Road into McClay Park, and I can still remember the day. In my mind, I can still see it. The, the clouds are grey and scudding across the sky, and the wind is roaring in the gum trees. Nobody flies a kite in a day like this, but I had to go and I wrecked the kite. Now, when Dad came home and saw the kite was wrecked and all the string tangled, this sad look came over his face. He never said a word. We never fixed the kite. We never flew it again. And it was sad. Now, I'll tell you an extraordinary thing. The first time I ever shared that story in my own church one of my staff came up to me at the end of the service and said, um, Al, do you realise you do that to us? I said, what? 
He said that silent thing. You know how you described your dad going silent when you upset him? Well, I'll tell you, that's what you do to us. I said, no, I don't. He said, yeah, no, honestly, you do. You don't yell at people. What happens is when we, the only way we know you, you, you've let us down is you look at the carpet all the time and you don't talk. I said, oh, you're sacked. <laughs> no, I didn't say that at all. How extraordinary. I tell a story from four years of age and in my 50s, one of my staff says, Al, that's exactly what you do. Do you know why? Because I was marked by it. But I had never honoured it. I had never reflected on that. I wonder what it was in my dad that had that behaviour. Because, Lord, I don't want to repeat that with my kids. I don't want to repeat Here I am in my 50s repeating it with my staff because I have never honoured it and brought it to Jesus and said, here I am with this impact on my life. Could you help me be different? I don't want to be the same. The other thing my dad might do is he might blow up in my face. And the worst belting I ever got from my dad was for buying a bicycle tube. 14 years of age, got a flat tire on my bike, I bought a bicycle tube, put it in the, in the bike, and dad tore a branch off a tree and thrashed me with the thing. Now, it's alienated me from my father because I could never have figured that out. I could never figure out, got a paper around, earn your own money, buy a bicycle tube, dad will thrash the daylights out of you. How does that work? It's my money. I earned this with my bicycle. Dad, when he realised I hadn't fixed the puncture, he was outraged. And I backed away and I thought, you are, you are insane, Dad. I wasn't smoking the tube, Dad. <laughs> it's not margarine, Dad. It's a bicycle tube. Get a grip, mate. What's the problem with that? And as a result, for the rest of my teenage years, I kind of drew back from my father. Now, if you'd come to me in my 30s and said, do you have unforgiveness towards your dad? I would have said, of course not. Dad's a wonderful man. But I had an amazing experience when I was counselling one afternoon. I had a woman in my office, and it was as if she could find nothing good in her uh, whole life to talk about. I said to her, have you ever done a treasure hunt on your dad? Have you ever looked for the good stuff? And she said, no. And I said, well, let's find it. Tell me something good about your family. And she told me, and we started to write it down. And the more we wrote, the more she remembered. And the more she remembered, the bigger the list got. And at the end of the day, she realized there's a whole bundle of great things. The blessing of my dad was amazing. It changed her life, and she went home different. I sat there after she left and realized I'd never done that on my own, with my own dad. And we were coming up to Father's Day. So I sat down at my office, and I began to think through the blessings that had come into my life through my father. Listen, my dad loved my mum. There's lots of people who've grown up in a home where dad doesn't love mum. He marked my heart. It's one of the reasons we've done 50 years. I can't imagine getting divorced. I've thought about murder, but I've never thought about divorce. <laughs> my father was faithful to God. He was faithful in his work. He, would, he just did all the ordinary things like a hero. And I wrote him, started to write him down. And at the end of that list, I was in love with my father. I sent him a letter. I said, dear dad, I have never let you know the gratitude I have for the things you were in my life. And I began to list them all out. And the very last one I wrote was, dad, whatever stability I have in my life, I owe that to you. I sent it off to him. Do you know he never mentioned that letter to me? Not once. He never told me he got it, wouldn't have known. But it didn't matter to me because I'd let it be as big and heavy as it really was. And from that moment, I loved my dad. And every time I meet my dad, I'd wrap my arms around him and I'd kiss him right in the face. He didn't know what to do with that. 
It was like a little telephone pole. <laughs> my mother told me sometime later that my dad had been in a bad mood for three days and when that letter arrived, it brightened his... He just thought it was wonderful. He wanted to go down the street and buy a picture frame and frame my letter and hang it up in the kitchen because it was on church letterhead paper. It's like a note from God, you know? <laughs> Mum said, you can't do that with a personal letter. He never mentioned it to me. It didn't make an ounce of difference. The moment I had let the good stuff be as good as it really was and I'd added gratitude to that, my whole view from that moment... I, my dad is one of my heroes. When I get to heaven... Uh, the Apostle Paul, I'll be interested in have some conversations with him. 1 Corinthians 7, women silent in the church. What were you thinking when you wrote that? <laughs> but he won't be the first person I look for. First person I want to see is my dad. And I'll go to my dad and I'll wrap my arms around him and I'll say, Dad, I made, I made it, Dad. I made it. All those nights you read the Bible around the table, all those nights I just saw you faithfully doing the stuff that a man does. Dad, I made it. I'm here and I owe you. I owe you, Dad. I'm so grateful. Now, I'll give you a couple of hints as I finish about dealing with imperfections. The first is this. Do a, do a treasure hunt. You've got a problematic relationship. It doesn't matter who it's with. Do a treasure hunt. Let the good stuff be as good as it is. Add gratitude to it and it'll begin to soften the way you see that person. Here's the second thing. Helen said to me one day, Al, you need to take your dad home to his hometown and get him to tell you all his family stories because, you see, your dad had a family of origin too. I bet you don't understand all the dynamics at work in your own dad's life. So we did that. We went home. Dad took us around the, the old gold mining town of Malden and uh, he showed us the little school where he was raised, showed us, told us some of the stories that made me understand how wickedness proceeds from the fathers to the sons. I mean... Here he was at school, he found all these sheep droppings and put them in a paper bag and took them to school and told everyone they were aniseed balls. <laughs> I, never, I never did that. <laughs> he showed me a dam where uh, in his teenage years one of his friends drowned. That was the day I understood why my dad was always freaking out about us going down the river. I said, what's wrong with you? It's just a river. He was freaking. No, don't go to the river. I tell you, I'll go. Dad, I, I, he lost one of his friends. He took me to a little white house where his mother had raised nine children virtually as a single parent. How he used to do a cow run and herd, on, herd in all the cows. He'd get paid a halfpenny for herding all week and he'd take it home and hand it over to his mother. All, ch all the children did that. Um, I watched him do it with his pay. He'd come home every payday and hand the cheque straight to my mum because mum was a farm girl. She knew how to make one dollar look like five dollars. She was brilliant. And that was the day I understood that belting over the bicycle tube. See, I was raised in the 60s where a kid could have his own paper round and on Saturday morning take his money and buy a double lime malted with a big scoop of ice cream. My dad was raised in an age where nine kids and mum were trying to make life work and every halfpenny they had went into mum's hands to help make the family work. And one day he saw his son not fix a bicycle tube but just go buy a new one. I touched a fear in his heart. And out of that he gave me the worst belting of my life. I could have done a number on that one. I could have that day, at the end of the day, gone to Dad and said, Dad, today the Spirit of the Lord has revealed to me how for years you've been under the grip of the devil and the spirit of poverty. And the spirit of the poverty got a hold of you and one day you saw me buy a bicycle tube and you nearly killed me with a stick. But today the Spirit of the Lord's flowing through my heart like a river. And today I want to say to you, I release you from all the sins and iniquities with which you have ever offended me. 
I didn't have to do anything like that. I just had to realise that my dad had had a different life to me. And I never understood it when I was a kid, but as an adult, I just had to say in my heart, it's okay, Dad. If I'd ever walked a mile in your shoes, I'd be a different person. I love you. Last thing to say is this. We often don't understand other people's wiring. People can only be who they are, not who you want them to be. My brother said to me one day, Al, I was talking to Dad the other day and he was telling me about the Second World War. He got to a place where he told me about how one of his friends had got shot in the head. And when he got to that point, he just stopped talking. And I realised he wasn't going to say anymore, so I got up and I left the room. And about 20 minutes later, I came back through the room and Dad was sitting in exactly the same place. He had not moved. He was as silent as a mouse and tears were just pouring down his face. And when I heard that story, I thought, that's my dad. See, my dad deals with pain by going inside and he talks to Jesus on the inside. Now, when I was a four-year-old, that didn't help me. When I was four years old, I wished my dad had negotiated and coached me through discipline. Al, don't, you don't, next time you need to ask for permission, let's fix the kite. Let's, he never did that. But he could only be who he was. And the fact is I just had to be grateful for the fact that his wiring had some problems, but his, his wiring was filled with grand things for me. And as a consequence, that was the day I began to understand how this principle works. You shall honour your father and your mother. Let the good stuff be as good as it is and add to that gratitude. Let the bad stuff be as bad as it is. Add to that genuine forgiveness. And if you can learn those two skills, you can relate to imperfect people everywhere you go. And the heavens will open wherever you are and good things will be there. Father, today I lift my hand to you and I pray. Let the kingdom of heaven touch this people. You alone know all their stories. I don't know all their stories, but you do. I pray for those who right now are remembering moments, some of them with tears and some of them with laughter. It is my prayer today we could take your word, knowing that Jesus was the greatest example of all, who in the Garden of Gethsemane said to his Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but let yours be done. Let the honour that flows from heaven heal our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.